0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, author Laura Rykovich. She's the author of Culture Strike, Art and Museums in the Age of Protest, which was recently published by Verso Books. Culture Strike examines the ways in which art museums have too often insisted on policies and presentations that are allegedly neutral and centrist. Rykovich argues that in working to maintain a broad status quo, too many art museums have failed to prioritize investigation and truth, she also details the protest movements that have urged museums to be truer to their missions and ideals and offers some ways forward. Culture Strike is available from IndieBound and Amazon for about 23 to $27. bucks. we will have links on the show page at manpodcast.com. Rykovich is the former director of the Queen's Museum and has held leadership positions at Creative Time and the DIA Art Foundation. Most recently, she was the interim director of the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. Laura Rykovich, after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Art in Practice, the Intersection of Poetry and Visual Art, on August 24th at 7 p.m. Central. Visual artist Jeffrey Gibson and poet Lely Long Soldier will investigate and highlight the influence and collaboration of poets and artists and the intersections between their chosen mediums. Gibson's practice merges aspects of Native American visual culture with allusions to contemporary geometric abstraction. The artist references the colors and patterns of 19th century painted rawhide containers, commonly called parfleche, which are associated with particular native communities in the Plateau, Plains, and Great Basin regions. His painting, Migration, is currently on view at Bemis in Altogether Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy. By intermingling these designs with a style linked to celebrated non Native artists such as Frank Stella and Joseph Albers, migration contests an American art history that very often overlooks Native American art. Lely Long Soldier's poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, The New York Times, The American Poet, The American Reader, The Kenyan Review Online, Bomb, and elsewhere. She is the recipient of an NACF National Artist Fellowship, a Lannan Literary Fellowship, a Whiting Award, and was a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award. She has also received the 2018 Penn Jean Stein Award, the 2018 National Book Critics Circle Award, and a 2021 Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature. She is the author of Chromosomery, Q Avenue Press 2010, and Whereas, Graywolf Press 2017. She holds a BFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts and an MFA from Bard College. Long Soldier is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation and lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Free admission, RSVP is required at bemiscenterorg slash events to receive Zoom information. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries in a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngin closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Outdoor Theater Under the Stars returns to the Getty Villa Museum, with Liza Strata, a hilarious retelling of an ancient Greek comedy set to Liza Minnelli's greatest hits. Cheer on our hero as she takes on the establishment, storms the Acropolis, and rallies the women into a sex strike until the men of Athens and Sparta commit to peace. Experience the talented Troubadour Theatre Company as they perform in a venue modeled after ancient Greek and Roman theaters. Shows start September 9th. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction, from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Beshara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others, show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Experience Nasher Mixtape, a series of tracks or micro-exhibitions featuring the greatest hits and the newest works at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See works by Basquiat, Brancusi, Melvin Edwards, Miro, and more, including Judy Chicago's Rearrangeable Rainbow Blocks. The vibrant major work by Chicago celebrates the part women artists played in The Legacy of Minimalism. Exhibition closes on September 26th. More at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Laura Rykovich, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you so much Tyler. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: At the core of the book, Culture Strike, is the idea that art museums should be motivated by truth and factuality. Before we address those ideas, you ask kind of the the fundamental grounding question in the book, how does the myth of neutrality manifest within our cultural spaces, which is like the perfect question. So, how did this neutrality, this kind of both sidesism come to infest museums, sites that are supposed to very much take the side of factuality and ideally interrogation.
1: When I first started looking at the subject of neutrality in museums and cultural space, I realized that I had to go back to the founding of these institutions to understand really what the positionality of these spaces came from. And really the museum comes out of royal origins and the church. And in the United States, given its evolution, the museum comes out of a desire for an educational space, interestingly. But it comes from a particular class of white male collector who amasses objects and items and things that they like that are essentially that person's taste. They amass these items over time. And and then, you know, a bunch of things potentially happen. They get together with some pals, decide to make a museum because they think that their collection should be shared with the public, which is undeniably a generous act. But in the midst of that translation from a private collection collected by very particular individuals to a public space showing the excellence of culture, there's kind of a weird thing that happens, right? This thing that was a collection of personal items becomes, by definition, something that is excellent, that embodies kind of high level of cultural value for its aesthetics, for its history and for its provenance, where it comes from. And I think, you know, when, when that happens, then you have subsequent generations of folks studying that particular body of work as excellent, as central, as particularly great. And there's no doubt that, you know, there are extraordinary works of art that have come into public collections in this way and very beautiful items and histories that have been revealed through this process but at the end of the day it comes out of a very narrow demographic viewpoint it comes from a demographic of person and people who had a certain level of education were certainly raised and classed and 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 certainly weren't exposed to every single thing under the sun you know that's impossible so Denying the positionality of where those collections come from and how they existed in the world and how they were enabled to exist in the world is really important because it's quite clear that, you know, the museums that resulted from those donated collections or received collections might not have received stuff that those individuals were never exposed to, that they may or may not have loved, but nonetheless might be important to the cultural record of humanity and therefore are not included. Right. And so from the outset, you have this narrowing down and a very particular narrowing down. It's not just narrowing down and separating the wheat from the chaff, as it were, but it's actually selecting the work and works that are desired by a particular demographic of people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And they reinforce a certain ideology that those people
1: because they reinforce a certain ideology and also because it conveys power, right? Because in doing this, you are consolidating the power of the people who have and the wealth to acquire these works, and also reinforce their taste as the dominant taste. And so in doing that over time, you're naturally excluding anything that doesn't look like that. You know? And there's nothing to say, you know, this is also important, right? I mean, we say that now, right, looking back. But sometimes that's met with remarkable resistance. <laughs> Things that don't fit into those aesthetics become questioned, and they become aggressively anti those aesthetics or in opposition to those aesthetics just because they don't conform, right? And so whole new bodies of scholarship have to exist to root for and enumerate the ways in which those items should also be considered masterworks, if we believe in such, you know, distinctions. And so then you get this, this, this completely obvious inside-outside, upstairs-downstairs you know, however high, low, however you want to term it, but it's it's there from the very beginning. It's there from the very outset. And in part, it's because the museum is established as a container for culture, as a way of separating art from life, in a sense. And, And it takes a really long time, even, you know, and I don't think we're even really quite there yet to really understand how one might actually be able to talk about the works of art that are used in daily life that that aren't necessarily classified as design objects or other things like that you know how do you how do you do that how do you do that effectively how do you do that with without taking away the dignity of of that work
0: you know one of the things that that answer reminds me of is one way in which american art museums at least collecting museums are like europe's historical museums, and that is uh, ours were instigated in a moment of triumph, you know, immediately after the Civil War, as in in, in New York and Boston, as a way of, in part, establishing the Union's cultural primacy as as a contributor to the war and victory, which it was, monetarily and, and ideologically. Across the book, you lay out both your ideas about what art museums should do, and you bring in lots of voices from around the world that speak to the same question. So, what do you think art museums—be they rich with historical collections of thousand-year-old stuff or kunsthalls, you know, which are pretty different—what what do you think they must do? What should be at the core of their work?
1: That's a tough question because I do think that there are very different roles for those kinds of institutions but i guess if i were to say they need to contain culture in a way that is flexible enough to accommodate a great deal of contemporary activity
0: Mm, whether whether it's art making or other things such as scholarship
1: or other things right whether it's scholarship or gathering of people (laughs) You know, I I know it sounds vague, but it's purposeful because I do think that there are different things that different kinds of institutions need to do and that and that it's not it's profoundly a not one size fits all thing. And in part, that's why I, you know, sort of resist the the demands that people have made to kind of map out a solution because A, I don't think there is a solution and B, I think that if the solution is derived by me or by you or by any of us individually, that the solution will invariably be flawed to the point where it's pointless. And so what I, but what I do think is that cultural space can be the convening site for the invention of those solutions because I believe that museums and cultural spaces are above all highly collective endeavors and and that they have always been that. It's just that they're hidden under these veneers of individualism because of the way that capital, hyper capitalism works and that they've been forced to do that. Uh, I mean, some people desire that kind of grandiosity, you know, as director or curator, et cetera, but I do think that they've been forced largely into those positions because of. The demands on the museum to participate in the kind of grow or die sensibility around cultural space that seems to permeate the U.S. certainly. And so, you know, I think that there is a real need to understand how radically slowing down might allow for cultural space to be a better, to be better for more people. And that radical slowing down would include the ability to actually address some of the structural questions beyond the representation of what work is in the galleries. And I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle because, you know, here we are having bearing witness right now, as we speak to, you know, many institutions, making incredible progress in terms of really having panoply of artists of color showing in their gallery spaces. But I wonder how much is being transformed structurally behind the scenes. And I don't just mean through diversification of staff, because uh, again, that's also needs to be a given at this point, but how we operate, how do we make decisions? Who is making those decisions? How are we governing ourselves? How do we choose to make cultural space more sustainable? And by sustainable, I mean it in every sense of the word, financially sustainable, ecologically sustainable, sustainable for human, for humans to thrive, (laughs) whether they be on staff as art workers or, you know, part of the publics that engage with them or the artists who are participating and creating the programming. So, you know, on all of those levels.
0: I think one of the things I'm most concerned about relates directly to that, and that is that art museums have almost without exception prioritized representation over interrogation, whether it's interrogation of the canon, interrogation of art history, or indeed the museum's own present or past practices.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that that is, and it verges or is outright tokenization at a certain point, you know, and I think you know, especially when the support structures are not put in place to actually make sure that those initiatives are successful and it doesn't and it it goes beyond tokenization. I, I've seen too many circumstances where there have been the kinds of hirings that make a great deal of sense, period, but then those workers are not supported in a way that allows them to to actually succeed in their in the roles that they've been given. And so I think part of my desire in writing this book was to say, yes, that's necessary. This representational work is absolutely necessary, but it is just the beginning. It's like the tip of the iceberg, as it were. And so how do we really get at what, uh, what has to be done structurally, and how do we actually confront the problematics of the ways in which culture is funded in the United States, for example, or the way that hiring is done or credentialing, or how do we respond as cultural institutions to protest? How do we view the demands that are being made? And that's where I think the radical view has to be taken, which is that protest is a radical form of care. And if I didn't care about the institution, I wouldn't be protesting it, and I wouldn't consolidate my ideas or even spend time thinking about it and organizing, organizing with other people to make institutions understand what, what we desire. I mean, and I've been inside, look, I I speak from having both been inside and outside and and being inside, you're terrified. You're terrified all the time because you are worried about losing your funding. You're worried about losing your audiences. You're worried about losing your board. You're really worried about losing your staff. I mean, it is just, it's just a big ball of worry. And so why not do it better? So you don't have to worry so much all the time and uh, easier said than done. I definitely know. However, you know, I think we're put in this debate, defensive position as administrators, as art workers in in the way that the whole universe is structured. So I, I'm committed to actually finding new ways of doing things because or other ways of doing things because I don't want to work in that space. I don't want that big ball of worry haunting me everywhere. And what I really want is to talk to the staff, talk to the board, talk to whoever, talk to directors, talk to publics, and understand how we can make it better for everyone. And that may sound Pollyanna, and I'm fine with that, because I do believe that the protests that have been leveled, whether you see them at unionization efforts as, to- as, as protests, or you know even more subtle internal discussions as resistance all of it is extremely valuable information i'm not saying that you know everyone needs to agree that is not the point the point is we need to have space to actually figure out what we're disagreeing about and actually in good faith have those conversations and you can't do that right now because there's no time there's no space there's no forum and there's no there's literally no venue in which to do that and i think that that is that that if i that if i made one request of cultural spaces is to please create that space within the programming as part of the work of the museum as part of the work of creating of cultural production, create the space to redefine the culture itself.
0: We, and by we, I guess I mean I, have been mostly steering the the conversation toward museums that, and, and, and concepts that have room for improvement. But across Culture Strike, you are thorough and mindful of pointing to successes and and you write a good bit about Australia. So have Australian art museums, be they collecting or Kunsthalle, both or neither for that matter, had more success in grappling with history and its impact than American institutions?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I only spent 10 days in Australia, but I did learn a few really important things. You know, I went to Australia about six months before COVID hit in the United States. And... What was interesting is that at that particular moment, you know, the land acknowledgment for example of indigenous land had just begun to be used in the United States and I was extremely sort of skeptical about it, not because I didn't think it was necessary, of course that was primary in my mind, but that I felt like it was virt- there, there was an element of virtue signaling that made me very uncomfortable, and I, I was feeling like unless you were really invested in kind of contending with settler colonialism, contending with indigeneity as as a key part of your program, I felt like it was there was some it was disingenuous in some way to. To vote, you know, to claim, to kind of signal your solidarity through a land acknowledgement. And it was just something that had been very worrying to me as I went to Australia. And when I arrived there, you know, Australia was very weird for me as an American and, you know, to be in a place that was so familiar and yet so vastly different culturally, like we spoke the same language, but we didn't really speak the same language. We were, you know, walking on indigenous land that had been colonized by, by settlers from, from Europe and from the UK. And yet there were things that were really profoundly different. And the, the relationship between aboriginal histories in Australia to the contemporary and indigenous histories in the United States and contemporary realities are similar, but also very different. And I was only there long enough to understand like only one minuscule piece of that, which was around the land acknowledgement, which was to me very eye-opening. And, you know, in Australia, everybody knows what language group, what languages were spoken in the, are spoken in in the aboriginal lands on which people work and operate and live and that is common knowledge. And not only that, but there are land acknowledgments at the beginning of every single form of events that I could imagine. And I found this on one hand very moving, but I was still preoccupied with this idea, with this worry that it was somehow not related to a more profound attempt at undoing. And I met with a with a number of curators of Aboriginal art. And I asked one of them about it because I wondered what what she thought. And she said that, you know, she she was very clear. She was like, look, you got to do it. It's just the beginning. It's literally, it's the least anyone can do. And you got to start there. And she was so unequivocal about it in the way that, that she just said it as a very clear statement that, The penny dropped in a way for me that I hadn't really understood before. And I realized that there were many ways of doing the land acknowledgement. And what she said then was that, you know, rather than they just kind of stilted slightly ritualistic sounding land acknowledgements that, you know, institutions put out that are meant to be repeated or, you know, PR'd to death and whatever at the beginning of an event, a lot of folks in Australia had begun to personalize land acknowledgement and make it more personal and casual and always with deep respect, but, you know, relate it to actual life, you know, and I thought, oh, right. And then I really started to pay attention and there were folks who, you know, obviously their institutions had a land acknowledgement that was meant to be read faithfully. And so they did that or felt maybe they felt more comfortable about doing it that way. And then others who just sort of talked about, you know, here I am, I'm a writer, I live in an apartment building that sits on Lenape land that has been, you know, cared for since time immemorial by the Lenape people. And I acknowledge the debt that I have towards them for their past and current and future stewardship of this land. And I'm grateful for that for me to be able to live here. And it might even get more casual and more personal than that. Anyway, I just thought that was such a it was such a revealing moment to me. And so obvious on a certain level that it made me th- rethink the way the way that institutions or even just people who work in institutions might do that. And I think to me, that was important realization, because it fed into this kind of frustration I've always had with the museum being seen as this kind of monolithic block of bureaucracy, whereas, you know, museums are very definitely made up of people. And in fact, you know, I always used to say when I worked at the Queen's Museum, that without the staff, the people who actually do the work day to day, whether it's opening the front door and, you know, turning on the lights or cleaning the bathrooms or doing the curatorial work. Like, you know, without those people, the museum doesn't exist. So, you know, to me, the move of personalizing something like a land acknowledgement to the individual people who are actually working in the museum made a great deal of sense.
0: I love that emphasis on the personal response which which I got to say runs runs throughout the book it's one of the strengths of the book because institutions tend toward the administrative and the bureaucratic and thus the conservative and can tend very quickly toward the dogmatic rather than the investigative and reparative and you know I can think of a couple maybe one in particular american art museum that has prioritized dogma over historical and institutional address and has become notorious in so doing. And it's, it's a place that, that that's address of its present and past is not personal enough. One of the ideas that most runs through culture strike is the failure of, of most, nearly all, American art museums, especially collecting museums that house historical material, to consider or grapple with the construction of whiteness by Western European and American actors, and especially white supremacy. As you worked on the book and have talked about it since, have you come to think of ways in which institutions should do that, administrative, programmatically, or otherwise?
1: I think part of the issue is how interpretation is imagined and done in this space of, I mean, where whiteness is still centered in the institution. And, and by that, I mean that there are not that many institutions that reflect the actual population of the United States. And so the need, the basic need for the diversification of staffs is still there in a really, or remains a, a major priority, I should say. And so with respect to that, I think a really valuable experiment that was imagined and executed by uh, Look at Art, Get Paid, which I talk about in the book, which was started by two very young artists and scholars in in college. And they uh, proposed a program for uh, the RISD Art Museum that was called Look at Art, Get Paid, that brought regular folks from surrounding neighborhoods in Providence who didn't typically go to museums and paid them to be experts, external experts in critiquing how the museum presented itself to its publics, and uh, you know, I thought this was rather extraordinary. Not only that these two really wonderful women thought this up, but but that that the museum, the Rizzi art museum, was actually game on to to kind of to to do it and to devote resources to paying folks to to do that. And you know, what's interesting about what the results were were you know not you know, I don't think it would surprise anyone that, you know, people of color felt alienated inside these very white spaces, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't think that they couldn't understand why, why if people, if they really wanted to attract audiences whose first language wasn't English, why they wouldn't have materials in other languages. You know, these are, these. this is feedback that could be accepted, that could be expected. However, what the project did that was even more profound was it made it personal because the people who were hired actually said the things out loud that they felt and that then people who worked at the museum who say worked in visitor services and I, you know most people i know who work in visitor services or Whatever, the, whatever it's called. And museums use different terminologies, but, you know, in visitor experience or whatever. Most of those people actually want to welcome people <laughs> to the museum. They're not, like, committed to exclusion. <laughs> and and I think it was really moving and kind of awful to read some of the feedback <laughs> as someone who spent every day trying to improve the experience of people to come to the museum. And, and in doing that, I think that that project had the potential to elevate the priority that might be given to the problems that people know exist but never have the time to really deeply address. And so I think Look at Art Get Paid is a really interesting proposition that artists made within a museum. And what's further interesting about that project is that the state of Massachusetts has now you know ha- has now decided that they're going to get look at our get paid to run its program within a variety of different institutions in the state of Massachusetts that was somewhat interrupted by covid and i'm not exactly sure ex- what's going on at this moment with with the project but i thought that was fascinating and i think it links to a larger conversation that we need to have in the united states about what people desire from culture and how and how cultural institutions function because at the end of the day, we've never had that conversation in this country. We don't even have a, a, a cultural ministry at the federal level,
0: or, or advisory even.
1: <laughs> I mean, don't even get me started. <laughs> National cultural policy, you know, and, and I'm a great believer in in the need to actually create to begin to create cultural justice in the United States as a whole through sustaining cultural infrastructure on a federal level. And I had a very interesting conversation last night with Jeff Chang, and we were talking about how, you know, when the NEA decided to focus in the late 80s and early 90s about on really making sure that that kind of infrastructure was funded, not just in big cities, but in small towns and, you know, across the United States, that that actually made an enormous difference to the ability for the ability for people of color queer folks women to produce work in a way that that was unprecedented at that moment in time and and so that that gives us an inkling of what real funding out of an infrastructure bill for example What that might do, A, to the balance of power between public and private philanthropy, funding of museums and and where the power lies, but also how we feel about cultural institutions as as a larger public.
0: You write about how in lieu of that conversation and in lieu of federal funding models that are sustainable and more in line with other Western democracies, that America has embraced both language and funding models referred to as public-private partnerships. So what are public-private partnerships and how has the ethos that informed them infected art museums?
1: Let's start with the nonprofit before I get to public-private partnerships because the nonprofit is the basis of the way that most culture is supported in the U.S. And that is a structure that was created in order to induce wealthy individuals to make donations to cultural institutions and many other charitable organizations, whether they be hospitals or social service agencies, et cetera, by providing a tax deduction to the donor. And I think what's important for us in our imagination, in our our collective imagination, it's important to remember that that was a decision that the public made to allow funds that would ordinarily enter potentially through taxation. And it used to be a lot more, you know, whatever, we can talk about that taxation piece in a second. But to allow funds that would have normally entered public coffers, you know, through taxation to be gifted directly and for those decisions to be made not by the public through their elective representatives, but by wealthy people who determined where they would be making their donations, and that that was actually a choice that the public agreed to to a certain degree. And so, therefore, there is theoretically power there, and you know, I I don't think there's a great deal of political will to undo that. And I don't know what the solution would be if one were to where you would find the money, but but nonetheless. It's an important reality to recognize is that, you know, this is not written into the um, rights of wealthy people that they get to decide where their donations might go. There's this other thing called taxation, that even if it were levied at levels approaching what was levied in the 1980s, would dramatically shift the possibility for public funding of a lot of different stuff, including universal pre-K, including... Public healthcare systems, um, and including potentially cultural infrastructure, and so you know these kinds of the the realities of the way that our imaginations have been tuned to understand the financial realities of the public sphere and the private sphere when it comes to money need to be reimagined, and that's that's my. My biggest argument around the financial piece is that yeah you, ha- you have to reimagine that. And the nonprofit relies on this, which we can agree it has, is dysfunctional to a large degree, relies on this. So it, it, it has been because of the great precarity in which the nonprofit therefore exists, having to find donors who wish to make donations to uh, ensure their continuation and their ability to, to sustain themselves – then there enters the public-private partnership, which means that that there is essentially an outsourcing of what might normally be considered a public good to be funded not by the public but to be funded by private forces, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing. It doesn't have to be. However, what happens is that you don't have – Anybody, whether you're in a venture capital firm or working for a nonprofit or working in a foundation that's overseeing grant making, nobody wants to see, everyone wants to see a diversity of sources of funds. You know why? Because if you don't have a diversity of sources of funds, certain parties have undue influence over whatever the endeavor is, whether it's a museum, whether it's an investment fund, whether it's the way you spend your grant money. And so how do you ensure that? Well, you have to, you have, to have places that you can go and the, these public-private partnerships end up, whether they intend to or not, whether they have like ulterior motives or evil genius kind of uh, desires, they always do the work in highest priority of the largest funder. It's just the way it works. It just happens. It's not, this isn't like up for debate. <laughs> it just happens this way. <laughs> And there are trends all the time that show this.
0: One of the, the things I noticed about the book is that nearly all of its address of American art museums is of New York art museums. Of course, you're a New Yorker. There are a couple pages on a sequence of events at the Walker in Minneapolis and a couple of pages addressing Philip Gustin related decision making, we might say, at the National Gallery of Art. Is part of the argument of the book that the issues you raise and that we're discussing are are pretty much confined to New York institutions or that museums in the other 97, 98 percent of America have found solutions that we should recognize and consider? Or is it that, wow, New York museums are really stuck in a problem at the moment?
1: I think New York museums are really stuck in a problem at the moment. I think that many other museums are also stuck in a pro- in the same problem although they manifest differently in different contexts. I wrote about these particular things because I knew them best because it's where I live and you know I knew I know the ins and outs of the different people who were playing in those spaces and, you know, working on the protests in various ways. And that's why I chose them, because I felt like I could really wrap my arms around, you know, the issues at hand and speak to them with the rigor I felt needed, I needed to bring on that front. So yeah, no, it's not that I think, I, I think that there are very many institutions that are struggling with very similar problems. These were just the ones that I felt like I could dive into best. But yeah, there is. this is not unique to New York. It's not unique to urban spaces, although it may be possibly accentuated because of the cost of doing business generally speaking, within within urban space. But I I think, you know, this is a this is a US wide problem and potentially a global problem, thinking about it more broadly, just because of the reality of the consolidation of wealth and power in an extreme way under late capitalism. I mean, you know, the number of people who made terrific amounts of money on during on and during the pandemic is just it's, it's a further highlighting of the dramatic global situation reflected in not only, you know, how vaccines are being distributed around the globe, the fact that, you know, variants are going to continue to come at us no matter what, because of the inequities that are created by these kind of global power systems. And I guess my point a little bit in, in kind of focusing on a few circumstances was to say, okay, these are the things that happened and how they kind of, how the chess pieces fell or whatever the expression is. But it didn't necessarily have to happen that way. <laughs> and there are options, there are ways of doing. You know, we, we can examine the ways in which things happened and hopefully understand perhaps other ways of approaching it but that would require a certain type of transformation and you know one of my one of the things that i i really question is the way that cultural institutions respond not only to protest but also to criticism not only in the sense of how they might imagine it internally but also like literally what the response is you know and i i know what it feels like you know you feel like you're under attack when you're inside and something happens and the press is clamoring and, but, but what if the cone of silence didn't descend upon the museum in that moment? There's something that I really wanted. Like I wanted to hear, you know, from the brilliant people who work at the Whitney.
0: Uh, You know what, let me jump in because that raises the opportunity for us to make this more specific. And I was going to (laughs) raise the Whitney as you started talking about this anyway. The Whitney is certainly the museum that comes up more than any other in in the book, and deservedly so. It has made mistakes, especially in terms of whiteness, in terms of siding with the worst militarists in displaying the most problematic racist art repeatedly for half a century. I mean, it it goes back to the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition's emergence in the late 60s and its attention to the Whitney starting shortly thereafter. So in terms of where I interrupted you... What do you think the Whitney's trustees and staff leadership might do, could do, should do to break a long cycle?
1: (laughs) Now, that's quite a question. We try. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know that I have a prescription. It's quite a profound issue. But I think there are a few starting points. I mean, I keep going back to this, but the slowing down piece is so essential. I can't overstate it. And, you know, I, I just, I know so many folks who work at the Whitney who've, who are just burnt out. It's just, you know, it's a it's tough. They're, they're producing culture at, at unprecedented rates. It's just, and I feel like there's no room for the actual discussions to happen. And I, I just wonder, you know, I think the fact that the Dana Schutz painting was shown at the Whitney in the biennial, I think that all of those things together added up to more than just the Dana Schutz painting's existence, for example. I think it comp- the, the, the Whitney's history compounded the way that it as an institution framed Open Casket in a ver- very particular way, and it also, And the responses that were generated to it, both the the kind of outcry around how and why such a painting would be displayed in a museum and in the biennial and in the Whitney in particular, and then the counter arguments around censorship and then the counter counter arguments, you know, all of that debate, which which was really actually quite important, you know, and and happened somewhat publicly publicly. From a critique standpoint, but at the same time, the Whitney itself as an institution may have engaged in that internally by, you know, hiring Aruna D'Souza and and having really deep conversations with her about some of it by, you know, engaging the Racial Imaginary Institute to come and present a really quite extraordinary program with quite robust public discussion. But I also felt like, you know, what would have happened if the actual internal conversations of the Whitney staff became more public. I kind of want to know what folks were thinking, you know, and what they are thinking and what they do think.
0: You mean you mean before the work went on view or as part of the process you're describing?
1: Well, even if it didn't happen before, right? <laughs> even if it only happened afterwards, the kind of breakdown of that, you know, institutional, like monolithic institutional facade to the reality that there were very many different people had very many different opinions about not only the work itself, but how it functioned within the space of the galleries, with relationship to to the audiences of the Whitney, how how it might be dealt with, what the you know all of that. I think there could have been you know really an amazing conversation, and not and perhaps not just conversation, like a, a, a reimagining of how how to confront not only that type of work, but But when something becomes controversial, how do you even respond to that? How do we invent new protocols to do that? Because obviously, what's happening now is not really working. (laughs) You know, never mind, how do we how do we end up in a space where we don't have those conflicts to begin with? And I think, you know, in a sense, trying to mitigate those conflicts isn't necessarily to, to our benefit, you know, because I think that part of what the kind of explosion of feeling emotion and writing and ideas and around Open Casket was incredibly, actually, it broke open a lot of questions that we're needing to be addressed to begin with. So what happens when that when an artwork say triggers that kind of thing, you know, h- how do you then respond? Because you know, it's funny because I I remember I was talking to, I talked to the curate to one of the curators about the work and, and and in their kind of briefing sessions around the biennial that open casket was not one of the works that they thought might trigger protests, which says a whole hell of a lot about also, you know, what what people imagine will trigger protests. <laughs> so, I guess I want to kind of reimagine what the response might be. You know, what the response might be to a staff writing a letter to its director asking for clarity and for understanding how they're supposed to do their work in circumstances where they are personally impacted by the tear gas production of one of the trustees.
0: Back to the personal and individual we were talking about a moment ago.
1: Personal and the individual—we're not talking. These institutions are not these like great monoliths. They're comprised of individual people, and 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 the lack of actually making visible that humanity and that and, and the diversity that does exist within those spaces actually makes them whiter than they are. And I would say that is a strategy of white supremacy, first of all, but all the more reason to undo it.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, um, you know, corner suites like to act institutionally. People outside the corner suites like for more individual agency. And the trick is, or a question is, how to achieve that.
1: Yeah. And it remains to be invented. But, you know, I... Well,
0: well, let me... I mean, that's a transition, too. The last chapter of the book, you offer prescriptions for change, ideas for change, examine some successes. And is the unionization movement we've seen underway in art museums part of an answer, part of a way of elevating the individual and personal in the face of the monolithic?
1: Absolutely, because there you're actually getting to a place where you can potentially hear what people want and need to for for their work to be sustainable. But I think that's also you know, it's pretty basic. right? (laughs) I also think that the the kind of monolithic structure of the director position is problematic. I, you know, I would love to see what what would happen if you had two or three people who were accountable to one another and they're teams and the board for for producing for directing the museum and when by that i don't mean like oh tyler you handle the the pr and laura she'll handle the programming and somebody else will handle the finances no no we do it together and and and, and negotiate that and in that negotiation And in that collaboration, you know, perhaps new modes of how that position can actually be more sustainable might emerge. And yeah, maybe it's a mess. But you know, and obviously, Marsha Tucker experimented with all kinds of, you know, different structures when she started the new museum, like having, you know, people rotate through all the roles in the museum to better understand what it was like to, uh, you know, be a be a guard or be a gallery attendant or be a, a curator or be in the finance office. I'm not sure that that was terribly successful in terms of, well, most of the people, most of the stuff I've read about that have said it was a kind of a disaster. But I think that there are other ways that we might think about you know, administering the museum differently. You know, I'm not against hierarchy uh, as such, but I'm, I'm, what I what I would advocate for is a hierarchy that better serves the people who are actually, you know, making the program run. So for example, you know, when I first started working at the Queens Museum, it was a relatively flat structure. And what I realized is that, you know, folks who are having questions that they didn't know how to deal with managerially or programmatically, didn't really have anyone to go to to ask except for the director because of the way that the reporting structure worked. And so we added a layer of deputy directors. And I explicitly taught we explicitly talked about this was not a distancing mechanism that I was imposing, but this was something that I wanted to provide resources for folks who needed questions answered. But, you know, they, they, they needed somebody who was perhaps more available than I was, you know, for example. So these are all incomplete thoughts, in part, because I don't think that I can find the solution on my own. These are like my experiences that have given me certain potential routes forward. But the important thing is that we reinvent it in a a more collective way. And that, you know, my offerings in the last chapter of the book are really about, you know, thinking through thoughts like, well, what would happen if, for example, participatory budgeting in the United States, in New York, has, has been quite successful, that the city council basically allocates a certain amount of funds per city council district for community projects that are allocated by, by vote, basically. And, and what would happen if that was something that, a, that that cultural spaces began to do, both internally amongst the staff, but also externally, how might that work? What would that look like? You know, how, how would you, how would you really deal with radical transparency around, around budgeting? You know, I always felt it was extremely important that everybody understood on staff, what the budget was, you know, and what I most often found in most institutions I worked at was that, you know, anybody who had money to spend in whatever way, whether they were the bookshop or the head of public programming would only receive their piece of the budget. They never understood how their budget necessarily netted up into the bigger picture. And I don't know why, you know, like maybe it was because they wanted it. They thought it was too complicated to explain or whatever. But I think that that is like a fundamental piece of understanding how decisions get made and why is understanding that budget landscape and so you know i understand not getting into the detail of every single line item in the budget that's not necessarily something that is helpful to you know getting the sense of the bigger picture but i thought every person on staff should understand how their department fed in to the rest of the institution's larger budget and to understand how much money was being spent on health care and to understand how much money is spent on staff salaries and relationships to large. But I think that was like extremely important. So there are like really basic things like that or like listing the salary on a job description that you're posting you know, that are kind of no, no brainers. <laughs> but then there are much more complicated things like participatory budgeting and how would that unfold and, you know... I, I can certainly you know I can imagine very robust conversations within within cultural spaces about how that might be done and within also within community organizations with how that might be done in partnership with people outside the museum but that's all to say there's so much work to be done that in a way I kind of love the idea of tackling the really simple easy things experimenting with those and 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 all and this is why we need the time and this is why the slowing down is so essential is that you can't possibly do that without taking time away from doing something else. You can't build more hours in the day.
0: I mean, this all reminds me that American art museums have, especially in the last decade, tended to copy models from the corporate world much more than they've, enormously more than they've tended to embrace experimental models that the nonprofit sector in part was formed to allow to burble up, to emerge. The book is Culture Strike. Laura Rykovich, thanks so much. Thank you so much,
1: Tyler. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.